Well, Happy New Year. It's our first Sunday to gather together. What a great thing. I don't know if you're a resolution maker. I have resolved over the last several years to lose so much weight, I wouldn't be up here this morning if I had stuck to it. But uh, resolutions are a weird thing. I don't know if we have any resolution makers here. Uh, But I I think the word on the street is that 90% of resolutions don't make it three weeks into the new year. So I want to talk with us a little bit about how the gospel impacts the resolutions that we make. How do we face 2013 and have any hope that the prospect of 2013 will be different than the prospects we reaped in 2012? And the truth is that every person in this room, like a computer, has a default setting. Have you ever had a computer problem, the blue screen of death, and you have to reset your computer? You have to get it going again. You wipe everything out, you lose it all, and you start back over. People are like that. They have a default setting. And the default setting that you have is to be either backwards-looking or forwards-looking. You're either a person who is ready for the next great thing or someone who loves to reminisce about things from history. Think about this with television shows. Is there anyone quite like Jack Bauer on television today? There's just not. There's not. How many of you remember when Fonzie jumped the shark? Anybody remember that? It was the death of happy days as I knew it. That was just too much to have Fonzie in a leather jacket um, riding on skis, jumping a shark. You know, or you might be the kind of person that thinks about things from the past, or you're waiting with anticipation for the continuing of the Walking Dead television show. You're either someone that focuses on things that have happened in the past, or just in your disposition, you're a person that is excited about whatever's coming up. I learned an um, almost painful lesson about this hard wiring that I'm talking about when it came to learning how to drive. I had ridden in cars all of my life, but I had never driven one. And I had never really paid attention to all of the cool things that you get to do when you drive. You've got turn signals. And by the way, ladies, you know whoever's driving has control of both the AC and the radio. Okay, so if there's any question about that, let me just resolve that. You, you have control. But one of the things that you have control over is also kind of the rear view mirrors. And I had never uh, in my life been in a place where I could be moving forward and looking backwards at the same time. I thought it was fascinating. I could watch some guy behind me at the red light dance into whatever he's got on the radio, having a good time. Uh, applying makeup, um, whatever it is that's happening. There was a whole world of stuff that was happening in the rearview mirror behind me. Now, the problem is driving forward and looking backward is a pretty good recipe for a car accident. And there were several times that my dad asked, what are you doing? Are you paying attention? Well, of course I was paying attention to the people behind me. And so there were several times there were screeching uh, tires and tightening seat belts. And the truth is that you just can't drive that way. You can't keep looking backwards while you're trying to move forward. Forward motion requires what? Forward attention. Sometimes you see that in the life of the church too. Has Northside seen its best years? 1954, when we experienced the highest Sunday school enrollment we've ever had. Is it downhill from there and we're just keeping the lights on? 
Or are the best years of faithfulness and fruitfulness in front of us? Some of that depends on your perspective. And I think as we begin this new year, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, helps us to say, what should we be resolved to do as a church and as individual believers moving into 2013? And so I, I pray that as we sing this song about glorying in our Redeemer, that I can continue that theme as we look at this passage. So uh, let me encourage you to uh, grab your bulletin, open up in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll look at a few things here. Uh, Paul begins by stating a gospel fact. Point number one, Paul begins by stating the gospel fact that Jesus died for sinners. No controversy there. We believe that. But properly understanding this truth that Jesus died for sinners leads to a radical transformation in which three essential changes take place in the life of the Christian. And the first is that we are smitten, not a word you use every day, but we are smitten with a new love. Look with me at verse 14. It says here that the love of Christ controls us. When we become a Christian, God's love for us takes an all-consuming chunk of our life. And when we, when we talk about this, any English teachers that we have here will ask, well, what does the of mean? When it says the love of Christ controls us, does that mean Christ's love for us or our love for Christ? Well, without getting into all the semantics, it's a little bit of both. Remember your little kid song that you sang? Why do we love Jesus? Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved us. There is nowhere that the love of Christ is more clearly revealed than in Jesus' sacrificial and atoning death on the cross. That's where it begins. And our love for Christ is based upon foundationally Christ's love for us. If you remember back to Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, Paul is so overcome with this whole idea of, of Christ's love for his, his people that he asks this question, Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we get to the book of Revelation... And Jesus has letters written to the churches of Asia Minor. He tells people, remember your first love. Has your love for Christ, and the, because of the love that he has shown for you, has it flagged? Is your love for Christ abated? That's a great question to ask yourself at the beginning of a new year. Where are you if you are evaluated solely upon your love for Christ? God, where would you be this morning? You know how it was when you were first dating your spouse. 
You wanted to do everything you could by trickery, even if it was necessary, to hold her hand. And then you wanted to do everything you could to you know, put the arm around her. And then, man, if I could just kiss her, what a wonderful thing that would be. There's a wonder to, to fresh love that certainly we don't want to always be in an infantile state of love. Senior adult love, uh, Larry and I were talking about a, a couple that's been married for 70 years. That love doesn't look like uh, 20-year-old love. It's much more mature. It's taken on a different characteristic. But when we say, do you remember your first love? Do you still have a passion for the person of Christ? When we think about what Jesus has done for us, we're reminded that Everything we saw in the Old Testament, there was never any efficiency in animal sacrifice. But what Jesus has done for us is once and for all been the sacrifice of all sacrifices to end the sacrificial system that those who put their faith in Christ, once and for all, those who trust Him, their sins are forgiven. What a wonderful thing for God to demonstrate His love in the way that He did by dying on the cross for us. Jesus has saved us when we become Christians from the power of sin in our life. He, he, he saves us from the penalty of sin in our life. And when he returns, we have the glorious promise that he will even save us from the presence of sin. So when we become a Christian, the radical transformation begins by being smitten with a new love for Christ and recognizing the depth of his love for us. But secondly, when we become a Christian, we, receive a, we gladly receive a new master. Do you notice what it says about the love of Christ? It says that the love of Christ controls us. It doesn't say that the love of Christ ought to control us, though that would be true, wouldn't it? The love of Christ should control us. It ought to control us. It says that the love of Christ actually does control Christians. We are freed from the power of sin. We may still choose to sin, but we do not have to sin. We are freed from the power of sin. We are freed to live a new life that is exemplified by being obedient to Christ. And this passage says that specifically, out of gratitude for God's work as our Savior, we're glad to submit to Him as Lord. There's a false teaching out there. I don't know. It's, it's been several years since it's kind of reared its ugly head but it still finds its way into churches all the time because it's a Bible-based false teaching. And it's that a person can gladly and willingly receive Christ as Savior with no intention of ever submitting to Him as Lord. Well, here's the problem. I had the opportunity to do a marriage yesterday, do a wedding yesterday. And um, at the very end of a wedding, right before the bride gets to kiss the groom, what do we say? What God has joined together, let no man tear apart. We understand that when it comes to weddings. We don't understand it when it comes to theology. God the Father has made Christ both Savior and Lord. What God has joined together, we should not take apart. Now, the truth of the matter is, when a young one, or even an adult, when they first become a Christian, do they understand everything about what it means for Jesus to be the Lord of their life? 
Absolutely not. But the seed is still there. When you plant a seed in the ground, you're not planting a big, huge tree. You're planting the seed of a big, huge tree. And given the proper context, nurturing and watering, what do you know about that seed? It will grow into what it represents in seed form. And so the truth of the matter is, people who want a get-out-of-hell-free card, like in Monopoly, but don't want Jesus as their master, believe a false gospel. Jesus doesn't want to just save you from hell. He wants to be your Lord. And that's a great question for you. If you are grateful for Jesus' redeeming work in the, in the cross, in being your Savior, isn't he the kind of person that you would want as your Lord? So the question I have for you this morning, which do you love more? Do you love Jesus as Savior and kind of tolerate him as Lord? Jesus, I really like that dying for me part. That was great. But telling me what to do, telling me what kind of husband, what kind of wife I need to be, telling me what kind of parent I need to be, telling me that I'm not supposed to get angry with the jerks at work, that's just a little bit too much, Lord. So I'll take more of the Thanksgiving dinner. I'll take more of the Savior. I'll kind of pass on the Lord. I'll wait for that till we get a new recipe for that one. I don't, I don't like our Lord recipe that we've got. Friends, you can't do that. The God who died on the cross for you is the, the God that wants to lovingly control and direct your life. He's one that wants to give you an abundance of life, but he won't do it if he's not your Lord. And so when we become a Christian, we become smitten with a new love. We gladly receive a new master, and we live with a new ambition. Listen to verse 14 and 15. It says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, capital H, Jesus, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, this submission to Jesus as Lord is not a grudging obedience. It's not telling your kid to clean his room. And he goes... But it's, yes, ma'am, glad to obey you, Dad. You feed me, you clothe me, you take me fun places. Of course I want to obey you. You you love me. And our obedience to God should not be a grudging obedience. Rather, as Christians, we should delight to obey Christ as King. And I don't hear that kind of conversation among Christians. We should delight to have Christ as our king. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we use this passage when we talk about baptism. And we talk about what happens when a person is baptized. So when someone becomes a believer and we baptize them, we say that they are buried like Jesus was buried in the earth. And they are raised like Jesus was raised. Why? To walk in newness of life. That means we have a new ambition. That means that if Reed's the one being baptized, old Reed is dead, new Reed is resurrected. If Wayne is the one being baptized, old Wayne is dead, the new Wayne with a new master and a new love and a new ambition comes out of the baptistry 
to delight to do God's will. And this whole theme of obedience is missing. But these are facts that Paul states here in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that when we understand the gospel, there really is this radical transformation. Uh, Being controlled by the love of Christ, being glad to receive him as a master, and living with an ambition to to please him. Point number two, while God implants the seeds of this truth deep down in the soul of all who trust in him, we must also learn to grow into four glorious implications of the gospel fact. Listen, nobody's going to argue that Jesus came to die for sinners and that Jesus came to change the life of sinners. But now we get to meddle in a little bit because we're going to talk about how he changes people. And these are great things for us to evaluate ourselves on. Look with me at verse 16. He says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. What's well, one of the implications of the gospel? How do, we, how do we need to grow into the change that the gospel brings? Well, the first thing I would say is that we receive a new set of eyes. Verse 16 says we receive a new set of eyes. There's a contrast between how we used to look at things and how we look at them now. And Paul uses his own experience here. He says something about, um, we knew Jesus according to the flesh, but we know him now in that way no longer. Here's the thing that's interesting. Where did Paul go to seminary? Jerusalem. When did, when did Paul happen to be in Jerusalem? During the time of Christ. Who was the hottest preacher in town when Paul was in seminary? Jesus. Except Jesus didn't go to seminary. You know, he was outside of the religious establishment. Here's what I wonder. Is Paul saying here that he saw Jesus before the Damascus Road? Is he saying that he saw Jesus and he said, you know what? That guy's a heretic. He's a blasphemer. He's an anti-establishment rabble-rouser and he's worthy of death. Did he just look at him merely with fleshly eyes? And then later, when Jesus appeared to him in his resurrected state, he now saw him with eyes of faith? I don't know. I want to be very careful about inserting into God's word anything that's not there. But Paul himself is drawing a contrast between looking at Jesus with merely fleshly eyes and looking at him with with eyes of faith. Once he saw who Jesus really, truly was, what did Paul do? As quickly as possible, he dedicated his life to serving him. So we have to grow in this respect too. Boy, is it easy to look at people with fleshly eyes? You better believe it. We still have hardwired into us and we have to cut the electrical cords to stop looking at people superficially. Every church that I know is so eager to reach the wise, the influential, the noble, the strong, the wealthy. And you know what? If the smelly, poor, broke, with tons of problems, if they come, well, that's okay. We're superficial. We look at one group of people as better than others, and we disdain people who don't fit those criteria. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 26 and 27. <clears throat> he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that among you there were not many wise according to the flesh, 
Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Wow. You remember the story of David. David was so underestimated that when Samuel came to anoint a king, Jesse marched out all of his other sons and said, uh, David, you just go mind, go take care of the family business. I, I got something important for you to do. I need all your other brothers to come home and not you. <laughs> you don't even need to know what's going on. Just go out to the field and be done. And uh, the first son, <clears throat> he had all the characteristics. He was wise, he was handsome, he was tall. I always hate that. Why you got to be tall to be a leader? Um, <laughs> he looked good. He looked the part. They thought, man, he, he, Samuel went, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Holy Spirit spoke to Samuel and said, he's not the one. Well, who's the second most handsome, second tallest, second wisest, second most articulate? Well, no, that's not him either. And he went all the way down the line. And Samuel goes, Jesse, God sent me here to anoint one of your sons to be king. I've gone through all your sons. And Jesse goes, well, there's one more. He's kind of the runt of the family. I didn't even bring him here. He's out there working with the sheep. Well, listen, we're not going to sit down to eat dinner until you bring him. And says, when David walked in, Samuel immediately knew that this was the one. You remember what the Bible said? It said, don't look on outward, uh, outward appearance, but look at the hidden person of the heart. David didn't look the part of a leader, at least not in his family. But when God looked at his heart, he, was ready, he, he, he recognized that this was the man to lead his people. There's a really neat story. I'm not going to share all the details uh, about it. We have a man who's been visiting our church who uh, has relocated across the United States several times over the last several years. Just had a hard time. Uh, was working for a company up north that uh, laid him off. And since then, he's really had a difficult time finding a job. And so had moved to two or three states over the last year, maybe about six months ago, uh, started attending Northside, moved to Rock Hill. And his first introduction to uh, Northside was Vacation Bible School, brought his kids to Vacation Bible School. Uh, He's on unemployment, and uh, I have his permission to share this story. And don't look around trying to figure out who it is. That's just, that's ungodly. Um, He's on unemployment. And he said, you know, I, when I was working, I was faithful in giving to the church. And he goes, I have just been so convicted. He goes, I'm not even a member here, but I feel like I need, I need to be doing this. And so he's telling me after, this is after the fact, and he said, I just got to let you know what happened this week. He said, I, I get a $250 unemployment check and, uh, each week. And uh, I just resolved in my heart that I was going to tithe. It's kind of tough for me to live on, but I, I just knew I needed to do this. And so about a month ago, on a Sunday, after an 18-month hiatus of being unemployed and not having reliable income, he came here and put $30 in the tithe plate. You know what happened on Monday morning? Got a job he hadn't even applied for. Now, on that same Sunday, on that same Sunday, we had somebody here who put a five-digit gift in for our building fund. Church, who do we esteem 
more highly for their gift to the church? $30 of an unemployment check or $10,000 towards a building fund? The issue is not amount, it's faithfulness. And in the church of God, it doesn't matter whether you look good or you don't look good. We have a new set of eyes for how we evaluate people. We cannot be superficial. We cannot look at people the way that the world looks at people. God has given us an opportunity to look at people and not say, Republican, Democrat, black, white, but in Christ or out of Christ. That's the most important distinction for Paul. Not only do we get a new set of eyes, we get a new beginning. Beautiful passage in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Think about it. There are people who have been redeemed from sin and selfishness who now have this Holy Spirit seed placed inside them that allows them to desire to live for Christ. And so by doing, they have a new attitude about people. we're, We're talking about the implications of the gospel. We have a new love, we have a new master, we have a new ambition. And one of the ways that this is fleshed out very practically in our day to day life is we look at life differently. We, we, we evaluate people differently. And who doesn't want a new beginning? Listen, there are Christians that go, I'm glad it's 2013 because I'd like to erase the slate and kind of start over. Anybody here think a new beginning would be kind of nice? Would you like to forget some things from 2013 and start over in your faithfulness to God? I would. I, I don't want 2012 to be the capacity of my faithfulness for 2013. I want it to be a stepping stone for my faithfulness there. And this new beginning is a wonderful thing. The Bible's full of new beginnings. Think about this. The exodus out of Egypt, entry into the promised land, returning from the exile in Babylon. These are all new beginnings for the people of God. But this is greater. What Jesus does for us in the cross, we're now delivered from the plague of plagues, the disease that results not only in physical death, but the threat of an eternity separated from God in hell. Through the gospel, God doesn't just give us a new place. He gives us eternal security. He gives us a relationship with Him. He gives us the chance for all of our sins to be wiped out and for us to approach new every day as a new opportunity to experience His mercy. And when we understand what it means to have a new beginning... We have to continue on and finish out the rest of our passage. And in verses 18 through 21, we're told two important things. Look with me at uh, verses 18 through 21. Now, all these things, having a new love, a new master, a new ambition, new eyes, a new beginning, all of these things are from God who did what? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Friends, when we come to Christ, we inherit a new job. No one in the Christian family has the spiritual gift of pew-sitting. Look where you want. It's not there. God has not so designed his family that there is not something for you to do. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary. According to this passage, the Bible says that if you are a Christian, your job is to be an ambassador for Christ. Now think about that. I don't know how many ambassadors you know. I don't know any. But what's their function? Why do you need ambassadors? You, you use ambassadors to travel to foreign countries to build relationships with people who are not your people. We have American ambassadors in virtually every foreign country of the world to build relationships with people who are not Americans. God has ambassadors throughout this world to build relationships with people who are not yet a part of God's family. That's our role. That's our job. And our job as ambassadors is to do the very thing that has happened to us. We have been reconciled to God. We are to help others to be reconciled to Him as well. Reconciliation was one of the chief ways that Paul describes his job here. He was reconciled to God and now saw it as his duty to help others to be reconciled to Him as well. And so the job of an ambassador is to speak on behalf of the ruler or the nation that has commissioned him. He doesn't come with his own message. He doesn't kind of fly off the cuff and go, oh yeah, by the way. And then whoever sent him finds out what he says and goes, oh my goodness, what did you say? I didn't tell you to say that. No, the ambassador doesn't come with his own message. Likewise, as God's ambassadors, our new job, our new job comes with a startling new message. A startling new message. And the message is this, that God is reconciling men through Christ. That's amazing. God is reconciling men to himself through Christ. Now, the truth is reconciliation is a tough word. I don't know that we use that much. Maybe if you're an accountant, you talk about reconciling accounts, getting everything to line up. Reconciliation is a relational term. Have you ever had a fight right before you go to bed and you could drive a semi-truck between a couple sharing the same bed because you're sleeping on the outward edges. You don't even want to be in the same room with them. You've got nowhere else to go. The couch is too uncomfortable. What fixes that? Reconciliation. And you see, the trouble with reconciliation is it's a team project. One person can't decide to reconcile if the other person doesn't want to. You can have the right attitude and want to be reconciled with all your heart. And if the other person that you are in a relational tiff with doesn't want reconciliation, guess what happens? You don't have reconciliation. Reconciliation is impossible when one side is willing to put the past behind them and the other side is merely willing to take advantage of the situation. It's a team effort. Both have to acknowledge the wrong. And the injured party has to be willing to be a bigger person and let it go. And so what do you do 
<clears throat> what do you do if there's a breach in a relationship? Let's say your husband, purely hypothetical, does something dumb and insensitive. Is there any chance of that happening? Don't ask my wife. <laughs> it's believable. Men, dumb and, dumb and insensitive kind of comes with the territory. Um, hopefully, by God's grace, we can grow out of that, but it happens. <clears throat> if you're like most women, you let them know what he did. And you drop hints as to when his groveling can begin. Okay, now would be an appropriate time for you to start begging for my forgiveness. If you want to get down on your knees, buy me flowers, that's great too. Um, but you really screwed up and you need to make things right. You let him know how he can begin to pursue reconciliation. And here's the thing that's kind of interesting. As we listen to this passage, it sounds like God is the one who needs to be reconciled to us. You know why? He's the one who's taking the initiative. Now, I don't know about you. God has granted me a, a, a fairly sensitive spirit. When I do something wrong, God lets me know it pretty quickly. And so if I ever offend you, uh, within 30 seconds of me figuring out that I've done it, I will be giving you a phone call saying, please forgive me. Not what I intended. I'm sorry that I didn't communicate clearly enough. God's just given, he, he's given that to me. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Well, here's the thing. Um, God's the one in this passage who is doing all the work to reconcile men to himself. It almost sounds like he's the one who's at fault and he's, becoming convicted about it, and he's saying, oh, please, we, can, can we be reconciled? But is that the issue? Is God the one who has perpetrated the breach in the relationship, and now he's the one coming to us to be reconciled? No, that's absolutely not the case. Look at what it says here in verse oh, 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Look at this next phrase not counting their trespasses against them. You know what a trespass is? Going where you don't belong. You know when you're trespassing? You you see the fence that says no hunting, private property. You know, uh, you you come across this line, you'll get shot. You know, "Don't, don't, don't come across this. This is mine, not yours. In the same way, morally and ethically, God has established boundaries for what we're supposed to do and not do. And when we cross that boundary, we are actively disobeying what God has told us to do. We are trespassing. So this is not, you know, it's just a, it's just a slip of the tongue. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just a mistake. Oh, I just goofed. No, this is active, willful disobedience to God. As bad as you can get, transgressions, trespasses. And it says that God is in Christ reconciling men to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We are the ones that have trespassed, not him. And yet he takes all of the initiative. He acts like he is the offending party by coming to us and saying, will you be reconciled? And we so love our freedom and our autonomy that we tell, tell Jesus we don't want him to be our master. And by doing that, we're telling him we don't want him to be our savior. And we'd rather have our own autonomy, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and spend eternity in hell away from God. How does God do this? How does God reconcile 
men that have been the breach of the relationship, and yet he's the one who's so actively involved with this. Verse 21 tells us the most succinct summary of the gospel. God made him, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we who place our faith in Christ might become the righteousness of God in him. A wonderful verse that you should stencil on your eyelids. The most succinct summary of the gospel, perhaps in the entire New Testament. So I think a couple things to remember here. Number one, Jesus didn't go to the cross because a fickle people turned their back on him. Remember what happened? He walks in, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Here comes the king. Lay down our branches on Palm Sunday and just days later, crucify him. Jesus didn't go to the cross because a fickle people turned their back on him, though that happened. Jesus didn't go to the cross because false religious leaders planned against him, although that happened. Jesus didn't go to the cross because Judas betrayed him, though that's a true fact. Jesus didn't go to the cross because a mob intimidated a political leader. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To reconcile people who were far from God, to wipe out their trespasses, and to make a right relationship with God a reality. That's an amazing thing. Christ's crucifixion was not an accident. It was a rescue plan for stubborn, rebellious sinners. In this action, Jesus was treated as sin, even though he himself was sinless. He was not a sinner. He was not punished for any sin of his own. He became our substitute. He took all of our junk in exchange and bore the wrath of God on our behalf. There was a punishment we deserved. And in, when he took away all of our junk and our sin, by placing our faith in Christ, he gives us his righteousness. So now when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see my inadequacies as a Christian. He doesn't see my failures. He sees the perfect and atoning blood of Christ. That's wonderfully liberating, friends. That doesn't make me want to be lazy. That makes me want to love and pursue him even more. God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned or been a sinner as if I had been perfectly obedient, just as Christ had been perfectly obedient. That's a wonderful message, that you cannot build a tower of Babel high enough to reach and please God. Man's efforts will never be enough to atone for sin. And God knew that and sent his son to be the redeeming agent for us. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, Brother, you and your sin must be parted, or you and your God can never come together. And I want you to consider this morning as we conclude. Wonderful gospel facts that God is saving sinners, giving us, giving us new motives, giving us new love, giving us a new master, giving us new eyes, giving us a new beginning, giving us a new job, giving us a new message. The challenge is, what are you doing with it? Now, I don't expect anyone to quit their day job, go up to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, 
and put a resume in for, you know, worldwide evangelist. That's not the goal. And that's, that's not what God probably wants for most people in this room. There might be some that God is in the process of calling to ministry, saying this would be a great thing for you to do with your life. God expects you to be an ambassador wherever you work. If you work for Bowater or whatever its French-Canadian name is, if you work for York Tech, if you're a student at Winthrop University, God wants you to be an ambassador where you're at. Not every missionary has to go overseas to be faithful to God. Most of our missionaries need to be in our own homes, neighborhoods, and places of work. But listen to the passage. Listen to what God says, that he, through us, is begging a rebellious world to be reconciled. Begging! I conclude with this quote. Another one from Spurgeon <clears throat> about this passage. He said, as I, as I read the Bible this morning... I felt like I should bury my head in my hands and weep at the thought of God begging anyone. Here is a God who speaks, and it is done. Thousands of angels count themselves happy to fly at his command. And yet man has so become God's enemy that man will not be reconciled to him. God would make him a friend and he spends the blood of his dear son to cement that friendship. But man will not have it. Oh, see how the great God turns to begging his obstinate creatures. In this, I feel a reverent compassion for God. Must he beg a rebel to be forgiven? Angels, do you hear it? He who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, veils his sovereignty and stoops to begging his creatures to be reconciled to him. Oh, friends, if the God we serve is so compassionate and so committed to glorifying the death of his Son by begging people to be reconciled to him, Begging your friends, your relatives, and your co-workers is not beneath you. Rather, you elevate yourself to a status that God has put himself in. To freely proclaim the good news of the gospel to any who will be willing to listen. So as we think about journeying forward... <clears throat> in 2013 and not having a car wreck by looking in the rearview mirror what will make 2013 a successful year taking seriously gospel revolutions uh, resolutions for a new year will you step up to the challenge of being an ambassador for Christ will you commit this day to sharing the good news of the gospel with one person this year our church will do whatever we need to, to train you, to encourage you, to go with you, to host a barbecue party, whatever. It, you need help reaching your friends and neighbors for Christ. We will find a way to help you. Because if we don't take seriously our charge to be ambassadors, 
We have no guarantee that 2013 will be anything different than any year we've experienced up to this point. And I don't want that. The status quo is not good enough for the church of the living God. Pray with me, please. Lord, we pray that you help us to just be overcome with love for you. We were those rebellious and obstinate sinners. And in your grace, mercy, and superlative love, you have overcome our rebellion. You have saved us, even in spite of ourselves. Lord, I pray this morning that you will not make us so self-satisfied with our own salvation that we hoard it to ourselves without sharing it with a lost and dying world. Lord, help us to believe the gospel more deeply. Help us to know that it is the only hope for people to escape eternal damnation. And help us to willingly, gladly, with enthusiasm, be your ambassadors for 2013. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.